0: All right, welcome to episode 19 of the Take One Security Podcast. It's been a while. I have changed jobs. I'm no longer with Fortify and Demand, uh, part of HP, which is now HP Enterprise. I'm now Director of Client Advisory Services for IO Active, and I've been there for a couple of months. It's uh, going well, and I'll have a lot more to sort of update you on around that going forward. But I want to jump right into the news to start off. So um, first thing I want to talk about is the Paris attacks, which uh, everyone's, I'm sure, heard a lot about and thought a lot about. But um, I want to make one particular point, which uh, has been made by other people in certain ways. But um, I wrote this back in 2012. I don't know what the incident was that happened then. It was 824, 2012 But basically, the idea is that um, the right answer for terrorism, um, the kind of terrorism we're going to be seeing, which is more common, more easy to execute, it's very asymmetrical, it costs very little money, but it can cost billions or trillions in damage to economies through fear. So the idea is that the better approach to terrorism is resilience instead of focusing all of your attention on prevention. So when France says, look, we're going to step up security and you're safe, I think this is the wrong message to send because they're not safe. Uh, No one is safe. Americans are not safe. Um, The French are not safe. It's not necessarily safe to go out in public, um, to go to a cafe and eat when these terrorists are out there and they want to attack us. But it's also not safe for a number of other reasons. You could choke on something. You could get hit by a car. You could have a heart attack. Uh, The world is not safe. Life is not safe. Life is the number one cause of death. Um, We don't need to say this, right? If if we say that, look, you're safe. We're going to keep you safe. We have people out there with guns. They're watching. It's false. And when it crashes down, it it hurts morale. It hurts uh, people's ability to function a lot worse than if we told them the truth. Now, the truth is, yes, we can be attacked at any moment. Any coward can go and blow themselves up amongst, you know, women and children and civilians. And this is an easy thing to do. But we don't care. We are... Basically, turn turn the population into heroes by going out and eating in a cafe, by drinking coffee, by meeting with your friends in public. When you know that this threat is out there, you are upholding the concept of, of freedom and courage just by being out there, right? So if there's a terrorist attack on Monday and you go out on Tuesday, that is your duty. That's what you should do. Guess what? You might be attacked on Tuesday because you can be attacked. And yes, we'll have more cops out there. We'll increase security, but things will get through. So the the concept here is that when you have risk, you have probability and you have impact, right? And these are the things that determine how much risk is present, right? Well, probability you can reduce by using prevention, right? This crosses over to InfoSec, which makes a lot of sense for this podcast. But if you think about prevention, you can prevent things to some degree. Um, But Eric Cole said it best, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years ago, you know, prevention is ideal, but detection is a must. Um, And this is a similar scenario in, in the sense that protection is ideal, but resilience is a must absolutely must be able to handle attacks that happen to us. Right now, the U.S. is so fragile because you could take pipe bombs, which I don't know how much they cost to make, but I'm sure they're extremely cheap. What, $100, $30, $200? I have no idea, but probably super cheap. You blow up 10 of them in malls or schools or whatever. Like, it's just so easy to scare us. I mean, that would shut people down. They wouldn't send their kids to school. The next days, weeks, the people will be frozen in panic. Now, maybe that's just something will happen the first time or the first couple of times, and maybe we, we would get better at resilience naturally. But I think we need to get ahead of this and say, look, we can be attacked. It will happen. It's inevitable. We have a giant, open, porous country with hundreds of millions of people in it. We cannot prevent attacks. Don't tell people that we can. It's not a good idea. So if you look at the risk equation, instead of maximizing prevention, think, think of it as diminishing return. We're, we're already pretty maxed out on prevention. We're at the 90%. We're at the 95%, which means you spend another $100 million, you get another percentage point of prevention. That's not going to get us much. It doesn't get us much. It's a waste of money. Not in all cases. If there's giant gaps, we should fill those. But in most cases, we're wasting money on prevention. We need to put that effort towards resilience. And definitely from a psychological standpoint. So imagine if we tried to change the other side of the risk equation, which is impact, right? Now, impact of physical things is not really variable, right? If you damage a building or you, you know, hurt the economy in some normal way, you blow up a bridge or something. Well, that has a money value and that's an impact. But most of the impact that comes from a terrorist attack is not on what is blown up or destroyed or damaged. It's in the reaction of the people, right? So let's say that's 5% physical damage. Well, no, probably 1% physical damage and 99% Reaction to that physical damage, right? How much did the economy suffer after 9-11 versus how many people died and, you know, the, the structures that were brought down and that sort of thing? Well, the, the fear, the Iraq war, all of these things are what did the damage. The reaction to 9-11 is what did the damage, more so than 9-11 itself, right? So... I mean, it's not really a conversation about 9-11 or the Paris attacks. It's just simply, if we want to improve or reduce risk, we have to stop focusing on prevention. We have to start focusing on reducing impact by reducing our emotional reaction when we are attacked. So one of the things I was talking about here is uh, an alternative response to a major attack, right? So instead of saying you've hurt us badly and the news shows it for weeks on end and for those weeks you're basically getting people more angry you're getting people more afraid you're basically increasing the chance that you're almost guaranteeing that people are going to do copycat attacks and the same groups are celebrating as a result of your news coverage and they're preparing new attacks the news response makes their attacks successful right right so here's an alternative, um, and this would be for 9-11, but, but it's similar for any type of attack. So great, you knock down two buildings. This is like Obama speaking or whoever's in charge at the time. up and reconstruction are already underway. You also killed 3,000 Americans. That's unfortunate, but we lost 86,000 people last year to car accidents, so I think we'll be okay. In fact, other than sending seals to haunt your dreams until you face justice, you haven't actually accomplished much. Sleep well. Right? And this is not... You don't want to minimize what was lost. You you don't want to, you know, insult the families who lost people and that sort of thing. But you want to say, hey, look, um, you know, in Paris, we lost a couple hundred people. Right? The, Paris, the, the French should... Reach out and be like, look, we lost that many last year to bee stings, right? And this is not like a bush come at me type thing. This is basically saying we are resilient. We will go out tomorrow. And um, if we see you on the street, we will take you down. Uh, We will fight back. But in the meantime, we're going to carry on with our lives. And also in the meantime, our security forces are going to look for you. And we're not going to say your names. We're not going to say your names. We're not going to make you famous. We're, we're going to basically turn you to anonymous future dead people. And we're going to carry on with our lives. And that will reduce the impact of any attack and therefore reduce our risk. So that's that idea. All right, um, so some news on the OWASP IoT project. So first of all, the name of the project is the OWASP IoT project. It's not the OWASP top 10. I went into this a while back. Uh, basically, the top 10 is a little bit restrictive. Um, and it's got a number of issues with it. So it, it was rebranded a number of months back to the OWASP IoT project. Um, and it's basically an umbrella project. It has lots of projects underneath it, similar to the mobile project and a number of other OS projects. Uh, so some exciting news, though, is we're adding a SCADA top 10 list. Um, and this is really just a top vulnerabilities list with 10 items in it. Again, we're not trying to play up this whole top 10 thing. But we do have 10, 10 vulnerabilities in, uh, under SCADA. And it's one of the tabs now that's on the, uh, that's inside of the project. So the project, when you go to the OWASP IoT project, it's basically a, uh, a list of tabs and it's got various projects un- underneath it, right? It's got vulnerability projects. It's got the attack surface project, which I talked about at DEF CON uh, and a couple other places. So it's like a collection of projects underneath it. And this new one, it's run by a guy named Nabil Auchun, which I'm sure I'm butchering in terms of pronunciation, but uh, he's going to be the project leader of this project because he's the one that did this research already. And I invited him to come and uh, participate in the OWASP IoT project. So he's going to be running it from there. Uh, Really looking forward to having him part of the group uh, and welcome him to the project. Next story, Pentagon Farms Coding to Russia. So evidently... Uh, this is an interesting point. It kind of goes to this whole supply chain thing. like where are you getting your stuff from? Um, when, when you outsource, are they really outsourcing? We heard this story a long time ago about you know the developer who was uh, a star developer internally for a company turns out he was in turn outsourcing all that stuff to uh, some some country in India, I believe, um, well, some external country to the US. Where the original country was, I think it was the country was India, um, might have been somewhere else in Asia. But um, anyway, he got he got caught, and uh, that was a big deal. But in this case, it was it was uh, some military contracting work, and it was outsourced and then outsourced again, and eventually got outsourced to Russia, which uh, could be an issue if it's a military application. So this whole supply chain thing and chain of trust and sort of concept is just really interesting to keep an eye on, especially uh, especially today. Crypto email service uh, pays ransom, gets taken out anyway. This whole ransomware thing is really interesting, right? It's like, you know, when do you pay? When do you not pay? Um, it Really, it all comes down to how screwed are you with not having the data that was encrypted. First of all, why did you get compromised in the first place? It's usually low-hanging fruit, easy vulnerabilities done en masse across the entire internet and you get caught in it. So, I mean, how do you solve that? You, you stay patched, right? You close vulnerabilities, um, you patch them, you keep them from being there and you won't get compromised. That's, that's the first thing. Second of all, if you didn't do that, you should have good backups. And they should be known good backups. Don't be backing up a whole bunch of encrypted stuff. Um, That's not going to help you unless you have the keys. But um, basically you have lots of ways to get out of this, have good backups, be patched in the first place. Now, if you get past those and you screwed both of those up, then you have the question of, do you pay the ransom? Um, And, That's a tough one. I I think a lot of people do pay the ransom. Uh, If you're some high-profile security company like these antivirus companies or whatever, uh, they often don't like to because they don't want anyone to know they got compromised in the first place, so it's a big mess. Um, There was also a recent recent issue with ransomware. First of all, there was a a new compromise where – it was happening to Linux boxes. It was actually like web servers getting compromised on mass. And uh, it was just going and encrypting basically all the content that was being served to the web. So the website would go down and they would get the email saying, Hey, you know, we've encrypted your stuff. Uh, So that was a big deal. And then another ransomware related story was that um, some ransomware, it was actually, see, which one was it? Linux .encoder.1 had a predictable uh, key for its ransomware. So basically, good guys aren't the only ones that make horrible encryption implementation mistakes, right? (laughs) So so basically, some white hats went in and uh, built a tool to decrypt victim systems uh, because they messed up the encryption on the attacker side. So uh, some interesting stuff going on there with uh, ransomware. So uh, Europe, um, Black Hat Europe, uh, showed some vulnerabilities in LTE, uh, basically some ways of uh, leaking location uh, with apps like uh, WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger and stuff like that. Uh, They're basically able to interact with a tower and find locations for people within like a a two-kilometer radius. Also able to block LTE completely and force people to downgrade to 2G or 3G. Uh, really interesting stuff. <clears throat> Onapsis just put out some uh, SAP HANA vulnerabilities. Uh, config issues that aren't really patchable uh, because they're configs. Uh, so things like remote, m- remotely writing files, remotely deleting directories, moving files to where they can be accessed remotely, which is really useful. Um, remote command execution, remote Python execution, uh, some of these, I'm seeing like a chain here, uh, a chain attack where, let's say you upload a file and it goes to a place that you don't have access to, to like do a web shell or something. Um, and then, but you're also allowed to move files. Well, if you could move the file from a place you couldn't control to a place that you can now access externally, you could sort of chain these together and get remote code execution Um, says to fix it, you basically have to have the latest version and then reconfigure your system. Um, There are also two other issues with a database that allow um, both HTTP and SQL remote code execution. So some major issues there with SAP HANA. Um, Really interesting stuff about Onapsis. basically it's breaking out into being um, ERP in general and not just SAP. So Onapsis is uh, evidently doing really well. So quick word on the TPP, the, uh, I forget the acronym, something trans partnership, something. Um, It's basically the trade deal, right? The international trade deal, Uh, trans-pacific partnership, something like that. Um, My question is, how do we, how do you have a giant deal get formed in secret? Um, And maybe I'm missing some part of this where it actually did go through due process and now now we're being allowed to comment on it or reject it or whatever. But it just seems like something that affects so many millions of people and the economy in general should not be allowed to be secret. And maybe that's just dumb of me, or, or maybe there is a vetting period that I'm not aware of. But it seemed to me like this went on for months and months and months in private. Um, not even in private, in secret. Which is a, a bit worse and and then basically they drop it on you and say, "Yeah, here it is, this is what we're doing um and i I don't know what the mechanism, like I said before, is to actually oppose it, uh, you know, assuming one country or or more didn't like it. Um, but it really strikes me as odd that something could be so large, widespread, affecting so many people and can be done in secret. It's just spooky to me. Um, so Vizio smart TVs uh, turned on tracking for 100 million users. This was interesting. We've seen other other uh, vendors have similar issues. But what was fascinating here is the marketing came out and they sold this thing like it was amazing, almost like the branding uh, surveillance as the Patriot Act, right? So they come out and they're like, this is a revolutionary shift across all screens that bring measurability relevance and personalization to the consumer like never before. That's amazing. Like how much do I have to pay for this? Oh, it's free. That's awesome. So it comes bundled. Like I get this for no extra cost. They're taking crazy, crazy surveillance. And it's not just this vendor. Like in general, this is kind of the bundle that comes with snooping. Is like, you know, we can do this. And we're going to make it, we're going to make it a gift and you're going to love it. And you're going to take it inside your walls. Like, I don't know. It, um, I guess it is true. I mean, the more data they have, the maybe the better the ads they they're going to give you. Um, I don't know, but who knows once, once they have that data, who knows who it's being sold to. It's it's just a big mess, but got to applaud these, uh, these marketing types for trying to sell uh, Satan as a up and coming, uh, you know, future leader or whatever. Um, Ring zero theory of DevOps. So there was this really cool blog post. I forgot who put the, the blog post out. Um, Might've been Gunnar Pedersen. It wouldn't surprise me, but um Basically, the idea of this O-ring theory of DevOps. So first, the O-ring reference is to the Challenger uh, shuttle disaster where they found out afterwards that the, this O-ring, this small little uh, piece of machinery, um, well, I guess it wasn't a machine. It was like a foam or something. But uh, basically, this failure led to a whole bunch of other failures. So, the, so this theory of DevOps... It just applies to DevOps, it applies to many other things, is that when you have many things being done in serial, and this is a brilliant, brilliant concept, or should be paid attention to by like any manager, when you have any serial set of steps, right, um, like doing a web assessment uh, in a row, or a sales cycle where you have to contact a customer, you know, produce an SOW you know, perform the work, deliver the report, do an out brief. Like these things have to be done in a row. And it talks about quality. So the concept here is that you have A players, you have F players, you have C players, B players, whatever. And what it basically says is that inside of a company for these types of processes, if you have A players, A players added to A players within a piece like this, you end up at like 90% function. You get extremely high functionality. The moment you add a B or a C player, it doesn't do what you might think it would do, where it brings it down from like 80% or from like 95% efficiency or 99% efficiency down to 88 or 92. No, it murders it. It drops it down to like 75, 70%. You add another B player, C player, now you're at like 60 and 50 and 40%. What it's basically talking about, which I find so fascinating, is that excellence basically blossoms into excellence. And when you add more excellence on, onto it, it blossoms even more. And when you have a shit show and people who don't care or aren't good enough or don't have the talent or the desire or the curiosity or whatever it is to do a particular task, and you insert them inside of an A-player process, you mess the whole thing up in a really bad way, in a a way that's much more magnified than we might expect. It's called the O-ring theory of DevOps. Now, why it applies to DevOps is obvious, because you have so many pieces uh, which depend on each other. So basically, if you insert a C-player, oh, here's the other cool concept. The C player could not just be a person, it could be a process. So if you have a shitty process injected into a whole bunch of A player processes or people or whatever, it messes it up just the same. So it's like you have to scrutinize new steps that are added to a process to make sure that they're A players. Just like you scrutinize an A player organization to make sure you're only adding A players to it. Really fascinating stuff. Definitely go check out the the whole post it's got some visuals that are pretty remarkable um, so ring zero theory of devops just google for that so next point i want to talk about is the chinese great canon so we've all heard about the chinese great firewall right this is a massive outbound proxy that does all sorts of filtering gets people in trouble if they're going to the wrong place basically has a whole culture of fear people can't google for certain things they like Tiananmen Square, for example, you can't look up in China. But <clears throat> but there are like thousands of other things. In fact, there's a list of the things you're not allowed to Google for or search for or whatever, Baidu. Um, but anyway, that's the thing we all know about. It's this big firewall. It's not just searches, right? It's also connecting to services that are uh, websites or whatever that are uh, disallowed. So that's the one we know about. But there's also this new one a relatively new one called the Great Cannon. Now, we saw this thing uh, work uh, a while back. I I forget which service it was. It might have been Facebook or something like that. Basically, there was some controversial stuff. I think it might have been related to Tibet. So China not only has the ability to block people from inside its company from going to places, which is the firewall, it also has the, the ability to nuke stuff that it doesn't like. So someone out in the world, I don't know where, U.S. or Europe or whatever, they had a website where they were hosting this information about Tibet. Well, the Great Canon is basically a JavaScript-based attack engine. So China has uh, millions upon millions, hundreds of millions of people accessing the web constantly, right? Just like anywhere else. But what they can do is they inject inside of... Uh, the content that's being displayed in the country, they inject JavaScript that makes requests to websites. So if they want to melt a server somewhere, they just inject uh, some JavaScript that makes multiple constant requests from a given user's uh, IP address to this other website. And these hundreds of millions of people who are browsing normally, don't even realize they're doing it, but now they're making requests to the site and suddenly it just gets melted off the internet and it could just point this thing randomly at whatever it wants. Um, it's supposed to be um, kind of a, a quiet thing, but unfortunately they kind of, uh, they weren't very subtle with the first attack. They just came out and destroyed this thing, uh, from orbit. Um, I I believe it was Tibet related, but I, I can't remember exactly, but, uh, really fascinating. So great firewall, great cannon. And uh, this thing's ready to uh, shoot at whatever they want it to. So I got a couple, uh, couple of extra things here. A must-read article, What ISIS Really Wants by The Atlantic. This article is spectacular. It's a little bit long, but it goes very fast. I don't know if I should have told you it was long so people get scared. But it's um, it's very fast read. It'll probably take you 10 minutes to read it. Maybe 15 minutes, whatever. But it's just so in-depth about what ISIS is actually trying to do, what the organization actually is. There are a lot of Muslims in the world who don't believe that ISIS is real. They believe it's kind of like a, uh, a, a giant conspiracy against... Um, it, it's basically a, a, a false flag uh, operation, is what a lot of moderate Muslims believe that's why they're not pushing against isis because they assume it's being run by israel or the us just to make people hate muslims so that's that's a big problem because moderate muslims are the only ones who could really help us against extremism, uh, extremism. so this article breaks down what isis actually is it shows that it's actually real they actually do have an ideology And it's fascinating. I mean, I won't do it any sort of honor by describing it, but basically they want to return to a 7th century Islam, an original Islam based on Muhammad's teachings. Um, They basically think everyone else is uh, not following the original teachings. That's why they're attacking all these other uh, Muslim groups, even the other terrorist groups, because they think they're not pure enough. And they're... Basically, trying to start a world government—the um, only true Muslim world government. That's why they're getting all these people from, you know, Europe and Asia and all over the place, uh, U.S., you know, U.K., whatever. They're coming to join this place because they're—they're—they're they're, they're, uh, marketing their propaganda is like, look, we are the only true Muslim. Uh, Enterprise. We're the only true Muslim government organization. We we are the real deal. No one else has been this ever since Mohammed died, and we're bringing back the real stuff. And if you look at everything they're doing, you look at how they talk to each other, the phrases they use, and everything. It's it's legit. It's hardcore. Uh, you've got to read this article. It will get you up to speed very quickly on ISIS, which. Is a good topic to be up to speed on right now because it's uh, in the news quite a bit. Finally, I've got two must-follows, Gunnar Pedersen. So it's G-U-N-N-A-R, Pedersen, and Benedict Evans. So Gunnar, I've blogged about him a number of times and tweeted about him. Um, He is a brilliant guy in security, has really great insights, has a great blog. Um, It's one raindrop, if you just search for that, the number one raindrop. I think it's typepad.com. Um, that's his blog. And the other guy's uh, Benedict Evans. So he is a guy who works for um, Andreessen Horowitz, which is a venture capital group. Um, but he does analysis of trends, um, stuff like, you know, software is eating the world, which uh, Andreessen did. Um, but he does one on mobile versus PCs, um his blog is extraordinary. He does these very, very long posts, deep, deep analysis on trends and patterns and what we can expect uh, from the future. So those are two, uh, two guys I definitely recommend you take a look at. And uh, that's it for episode 19. I will see you next time.